In January 1998, a devastating ice storm swept through the northeastern United States and Canada. The storm deposited five inches of freezing rain over the course of six days, covering the affected area in a thick layer of ice and causing massive damage to the area's infrastructure. Over a thousand electrical towers collapsed under the weight of the ice, leaving four million people without power. The area south of Montreal was so affected that it lacked electricity for weeks, earning it the nickname Triangle of Darkness from the media. Bridges and tunnels leading into Montreal were also shut down over concerns about falling ice and the ability for bridges to support the weight of the frozen rain. Even when power is restored, parts of Montreal remained impassable due to large chunks of ice falling from rooftops and endangering pedestrians and motorists alike. The weight of the ice also brought down thousands of trees, dealing a heavy blow to the world's largest maple syrup industry. The storm led to a total of 34 fatalities, shutdown of large cities like Montreal and Ottawa, and required an unprecedented effort in reconstructing the power grid. To deal with the effects of the storm, the Canadian military deployed 16,000 soldiers, the largest Canadian deployment since the Korean War. The storm's legacy was cemented when it became the inspiration for the third single from the debut album for the Montreal-based indie darlings, Arcade Fire. This week on the podcast, Funeral. Hello and welcome to Please No Moss, the podcast about Rolling Stone Magazine's 2020 list of the 500 greatest albums of all time. That's Derek. And that's Pat. On today's episode, we'll be talking about the number 500 album from the list, Arcade Fire's Funeral. Now, our last episode dealt with a lot of heavy topics. We covered Marvin Gaye's What's Going On, the number one album on the list. So hopefully this episode will be a little lighter. So uh, yeah, let's move on to today's album, Funeral. Derek, what's your history with this album at all? So, I mean, obviously, this album came out in 2004. I was a freshman in high school at the time. But, you know, as someone growing up in not rural Wisconsin, but not far from it, uh, you know, we weren't getting the latest and greatest hits. <laughs> so I didn't really discover this album until I was probably in college or maybe upperclassmen in high school sometime around there. But, you know, I felt like it was targeted directly to me as someone growing up in the frozen north. I was certainly the target demographic, for sure. And I even saw Arcade Fire at Lollapalooza in 2010, and they closed with Wake Up from this album. And it was... As is right and just. Yes, one of of my all-time great concert experiences. I'm sure. I'm sure. How about you? Similar kind of story. I was, what, 13 (laughs) in 2004, so I think I was listening to... A lot of very shitty rap and hip-hop at the time. Similar kind of experience. Older brother of a friend of mine that had, was a senior when I was a freshman at Dayton. And they had this whole house of people that like, loved Indian alt music. So interspersed between like them just blasting Neutral Milk Hotel on their front porch, some arcade fire made its way in. I want to point out that, you know, that we can turn this episode into a drinking game because I'm going to talk about Neutral Milk Hotel a lot throughout as an inspiration that Arcade Fire took. So let's just get that out of the way right now. I'll have little shots of milk for <laughs> Following, I guess, from our first episode, what's going on? Derek, could you tell me what was going on in 2004 when Funeral was, was released? Oh, what's going on? Absolutely. So this album was released on September 14th, 2004. The number one song that week was Goodies by Ciara featuring Petey Pablo. Uh, the number one movie was Resident Evil Apocalypse. 
which is, of course, the second installment in the Resident Evil franchise. I haven't seen any of those movies. Entirely forgettable. Okay. So 2004, Athens hosted the Summer Olympics. Michael Phelps became the first athlete to win eight medals at a non-boycotted Olympics. (laughs) It was also Usain Bolt's first Olympics. He finished fifth in the 200-meter dash. He didn't become the fastest man in the world until 2007. Also in 2004, we have Mark Zuckerberg launching Facebook. Former Yugoslav. The consequences will never be the same. Yeah, we're, we're still living with those. You know, today it's the website where you can keep tabs on your parents and also commit treason, apparently. Yeah. Also in 2004, former Yugoslav president Slobodan Milosevic goes on trial at The Hague for war crimes. And, you know, 2004, of course, is an election year where John Kerry attempted to unseat incumbent George W. Bush. So I just want to add a little bit here about some albums that were out already that might be relevant to Arcade Fire. Again, Neutral Hotel on Avery Island was out in 96. Airplane Over the Sea from 98. Sufjan Stevens had released Michigan in 2003. In the Airplane Over the Sea, of course, we'll be possibly talking about in the later episode. Yeah. Radiohead, Hail to the Thief had just come out in 03. It's like uh, the one Radiohead album that's not on the list. Yeah. Oh, I really like it, though. It's so good. <laughs> But Kid A came out in 2000, OK Computer yeah. in 97. We'll so. be talking about both of those later. Right. So, yeah, let's kind of get in maybe to a little bit of background about the artist and the album then. So there are a lot of people in Arcade Fire. Wikipedia lists a dozen current and former band members, plus another 15 touring members. I'm not going to go into the bios for all of them, but here's a quick overview for the two band leaders, Wynn Butler and Regine Shashanya. Edwin Farnham Butler III was born in Truckee, California in 1980. His father was a geologist for Halliburton, and his mother was a singer and jazz harpist. His maternal grandfather was Alvino Ray, a band leader who was a pioneer in electrified instruments and helped create Gibson's first electric guitar, as well as what would <laughs> later become the talk box, famously used by artists like Peter Frampton. Uh, But Wynn Butler was born in California, but he was raised in Texas and then Buenos Aires before moving to Montreal to attend McGill University. Now he is a frequent player in the NBA All-Star Celebrity Game and was even named MVP in 2016 because he's six feet, four inches tall. (laughs) (laughs) The other front person for Arcade Fire is, of course, Regine Shasanya. Regine Alexandra Shasanya was born in Montreal in 1976. Her parents moved to Quebec from Haiti during the dictatorship of Francois Duvalier. That'll be coming up in Mm -hmm. one of the songs. We'll talk about that more. She earned a BA in communications from Concordia University before studying jazz at McGill, where she met Wynn Butler. And then, of course, the two of them would later get married. But before all that happened, Arcade Fire was founded in Montreal, Quebec in 2001 by Wynn Butler and Josh Dew, who first met as high school students. The band's name is based on a story that someone once told Wynn Butler as a child about an arcade that burned down. It's just like some guy told him the story, and it may or may not be true. Wynn himself even says, it's not an actual event, but one that I took to be real. It's probably something that the kid made up, but at the time, I believed it. While rehearsing at McGill University, they met, like I said, Wynn at Regina Chasson, who had joined the band, and then she and Wynn would marry. The band quickly expanded to four more members, Tim Kyle, Alan Lavian, Dane Mills, and Brendan Reed. At some point before the band records their first EP, Miles Brosco replaces Alan Lavian on bass. So Alan Lavian, he's in and out. He's barely in the band at all. At a Christmas party in 2001, the band records a live Christmas album called A Very Arcade Xmas, which they are rumored to have hand-distributed to friends as Christmas gifts. 
while recording their first EP, bassist Miles Brosco is replaced by current bassist Richard Ree Perry. So they're going through mm-hmm. bassists left and right. Around this time, Josh Dew and Tim Kyle also leave the band. Then at a show to celebrate the release of their EP, Butler and Brandon Reed get into a big fight on stage. Oh. Because, you know, they're, they're, they're doing a set basically to, you know, celebrate the release of their EP. And then, like, right before the set ends, when Butler and Brendan Reed get into a fight, Reed quits the band on stage. And then Dane Mills also quits shortly thereafter. So. You gotta respect that, though. Like, live quitting in front of the oh, audience. Oh, for sure. You can't walk that back. And also, credit to Dane Mills for being like, if Reed's out, I'm out. Like, I'm assuming those two were buds. Mm-hmm. Mills is quoted as saying to friends shortly after this big incident that he had considered the band to have been broken up. Feels a little bit like someone who, like, bought apple stock early and then sold it immediately it's over yeah the departed members are replaced by win's brother will and tim kingsbury along with violin. will on bass right yeah with bass keyboard and percussion mm. basically i mean all the members of arcade fire are playing multiple instruments so it's hard to say oh. like one person is the bassist <laughs> one amongst many exactly we also violinist sarah newfeld joins the band as well And then we get Howard Billerman joining the band in 2003. He leaves the band following the release of Funeral. That's the only album he's on. Following Funeral, he's replaced by current drummer Jeremy Gara. But I mean, the comings and goings are kind of just a part of like it being a big tent sort of band, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a lot of bands you'll know, have like U2, for example, where they all like met as high schoolers in Ireland. Are we already starting with U2? <laughs> we'll get into more when we get to the Joshua Tree or Octone Baby episodes. But, you know, they, they basically like knew each other from a young age. Where these guys, they're already grad students. Yeah, and professional musicians. Win Butler isn't even from Montreal, really. So they're all sort of transplants for the most part. I mean, except for Regine, who's from Montreal. Mm-hmm. So after the release of their EP, the band is signed by Merge Records. Can I give a quick list of other oh, yeah. bands that have been signed on Merge Records? Absolutely. In addition to Arcade Fire, we have Neutral Hotel, Drink, <laughs> Dinosaur Jr., Fruit Bats, Mountain Goats, New Pornographers, Connor Oberst, his solo work, She and Him, Spoon, Titus Andronicus, Waxahachie, and Wild Flag. So very much in good company at the label. So this is at the time in 2004? Or those oh, no. are bands that would later be signed? This is later. I didn't have the okay. time to sort through. Sure. No, understandable. At the time that Funeral is being recorded, the band consists of... So this is sort of where the maze ends. I think because we got Win Butler on vocals, guitar, keyboard, and bass. We've got Regine Chassagna on vocals, keyboard, accordion, recorder, and percussion. Richard Reed Perry on guitar, keyboard, accordion, percussion, and bass. I don't know how many bands have two accordion players, but Arcade Fire is one of them. Tim Kingsbury on bass and guitar. Got Howard Billerman on drums and guitar. Again, this is Howard Billerman's only Arcade Fire album. Mm-hmm. Will Butler, the Wind's brother, on bass, keyboard, and percussion. And then Sarah Newfield on violin. Can I talk a little bit about some outside members, people from outside the group that they brought in? Yeah, absolutely. Specifically, Owen Pallett, who went on to become a longtime collaborator with Arcade Fire. Yeah, spoiler alert, I'll be talking about him later in my album recommendation. Okay, well, quick note here, with Will Butler, they scored the movie Her, Mm -hmm. and to great success. And then also, I just want to shout out Sophie Trudeau, because she does the violin on track seven, Wake Up, which is my favorite track from the album. So after being signed by Merge Records, now they've got an album to release right Mm -hmm. that's why you get paid so the band releases funeral 
Uh, this is the debut album for Arcade Fire. Despite leaving the band prior to recording, founding member Joshua Dew still receives writing credits on a number of songs from the album, including Neighborhoods 1, 3, and Rebellion. Mm-hmm. The album was recorded at the Hotel Two Tango Studio in Montreal in August 2003, with additional recording taking place at Butler and Chisania's apartment. The total estimated production cost is about $10,000. So indie record made on the cheap. But we don't actually have the information like which tracks were recorded where, right? It's I don't want to bring up later that like on certain like vocal or instrumental tracks, you can I actually believe it was just like supplemental recording in their apartment. They weren't recording whole songs. Mm. They were maybe just doing like additional like, oh, we need more backing vocals on this song. We'll drop them in just on our apartment. Okay. Well, when we have Arcade Fire on the show, we can ask him. Yeah, maybe Regine's just tearing it up with her accordion. Who, who knows? The album's title comes from several of the band members recently losing a family members prior to the album's release. And mostly grandparents and an aunt. Yes. Shasania's grandmother died in June 2003, when and Will Butler's grandfather died in February 2004, and Richard Reed Perry's aunt died in April 2004. I swear to God on Lyrics Genius, it said that Regine's mom died. And yeah, that, like, that's one. That's that's another one because that's uh, what the song "In the Back Seat" is about. The joke I saw was that you have four funerals and a wedding because <laughs> when and Bu- when and Regine get married. <laughs> so instead of four weddings and a funeral, it's funerals four funerals and a wedding. wedding. As I said, the album was released on September fourteenth, two thousand four. Became the first album from Merge Records to chart on the Billboard two hundred, peaking at number one twenty three. It is certified gold, having sold over 500,000 copies in the U.S., and it first appeared on the Rolling Stone 500 list in 2012 at number 151, but it has dropped to 500 on the 2020 list. Well, as we've kind of talked about, between 2012 and 2020, there was, I think, a lot of other genres of music that were open to being included on the RS500, mm-hmm. so it makes sense that it dropped. Let's pause for a moment to hear from our sponsor for this episode, Neighborhood Excavators. Digging a tunnel presents a number of issues. In addition to making sure your tunnel goes where you want, you also need to avoid underground wires and plumbing. Accidentally cutting a wire could cause a power outage, or even a year without light. So why not leave the digging to the professionals? Since 2004, the Neighborhood Excavation Company has brought their expertise to thousands of construction projects, big and small. Forget all that you used to know about digging tunnels, and wake up to what Neighborhood Excavations can provide. Need to dig a tunnel from your bedroom to your friend's house? Look no further. Neighborhood Excavation specializes in residential projects. They won't ask questions about why you need a secret tunnel. That's your business. Digging the tunnel? Well, that's their business. Neighborhood's contractors are licensed in all 50 states, Puerto Rico, and Haiti. Right now, if you contract with Neighborhood for one tunnel project, you can have a second tunnel dug for 25% off if you use promo code NOMAS. That's Neighborhood Excavations, promo code NOMAS. So, Derek, you said you had a couple things to note about the album art here. Yeah, I just want to give a quick sort of visualization of what this album cover looks like. So the album art is a painting of a hand scrawling with a large quill with ornate foliage growing from its feathers. The image is painted onto a piece of a wooden planter. The work was painted and photographed for the album cover by artist Tracy Maurice, who had been introduced to Wynn Butler through a mutual friend. See, I've seen different versions of this cover where instead of the nice wood grain making it like three-dimensional is just like beige. 
It looks so much worse. So I don't know if it's like a CD cover versus an LP or what. For some reason, I think I originally saw this album cover as a thumbnail. Mm-hmm. And the words Arcade Fire are in sort of you know fancy looking font in the bottom right. Mm-hmm. And in the thumbnail, I thought it was a skyline. I don't know why. That's just how I read it through the thumbnail because it was just a small yeah. image. And Here, so let me zoom I, out real far on the Wikipedia Yeah, so page. whenever I see that, it still reads to me as a skyline, even though I know that it's text. Maybe um, we should go to Montreal and look at the sky. <laughs> I, I mean, I've been to Montreal. If, you need to have, if you're going to do it in the Montreal skyline, you need to have the Olympic Stadium in there. It doesn't have like the CN Tower like Toronto. Uh, right. When you're thinking of Canadian skylines, you always want to throw a CN Tower in there. But that's not. This is Montreal, not Toronto. So very different. Be, but you, if you're doing the Montreal skyline, you definitely would want the the Stade Olympique, as it's called, <laughs> where where the Expos used to play. So, are we ready to talk about to work through the album song by song? Yeah, absolutely. So let's start with at the start. I mean, that's a very good place to start. Yeah, neighborhood number one, tunnels. Yeah, coming into track one, neighborhood number one, tunnels. Um, that lone piano intro, I think, is so iconic. Like yeah. it just primes you for the experience. It's just of sort of like tinkling. Album. It's it sort of almost feels just like random notes being played. Do you want to talk about the, what the imagery of a tunnel? Like ostensibly, it's a protected place. Obviously, he longs a connection between him and the girl, and so you know his parents have the grief over the death of the grandparents. Is that all it is? Just a metaphor for having a protected place? So, I mean, with apologies to our sponsor, Neighborhood Excavators, this is not about a tunnel dug underground, but rather a tunnel that's been dug through the snow. From one window to another. Again, you know, these are people, those bands from Montreal, they're used to multiple feet of snow potentially burying the titular neighborhood of this song and others on the album. One thing I forgot to follow up on i have on my notes here i'm like does montreal or houston have a meadow in the middle of the city i think you're more likely montreal but i mean you need to houston has a that. parking lot in the middle of the city <laughs> <laughs> the uh, whole city's a parking lot i know montreal has a mountain the right. mont that it's named for <laughs> but i don't recall a, a meadow yeah our meadow is particularly a, i'm sure there's a nice park yeah I had a note here about the backing track here. The drum cymbals are kind of like bounce, bounce, bounce. It's not like a syncopated rhythm, but just like two rhythms that are kind of out of phase. Mm. So there's like some other tracks, for example, from like the police and stuff that like use more of like an Arabic style of drums and percussion. And that actually kind of reminded me that style was something that I picked up on in here. I could be completely wrong. I don't have any formal music education. It did seem kind of interesting what i'm going to talk about later is how you know this is kind of the not rubric but like the prototype for a lot of later indie music especially when it comes to like drums and rhythm guitar yeah it starts small with this piano but it builds to this sort of big anthemic song
Oh yeah. Choral uh, vocals. Just choral vocals. You've got that, that being repeated by the guitars and everything. Yeah. Lyrically it's, you know, kind of cuts to the chase. The album's called Funeral. It immediately starts talking about grief. At one point they're talking about they get older. They forgot the names they used to know. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's kind of just them like getting over the grief? They've already grieved, so it's not, you know, in the front of their mind. They've forgotten essentially deceased that they would then name their kids in honor of. Basically, forgetting the names is kind of getting over that loss. Yeah, I mean that's 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 an interesting read on it. I think this album, like it, it's obviously they'll name funeral, but I think it has aside from maybe a couple songs, grief isn't really a big part of what the album is about. I think it's more about uncertainty for the future and maybe grief for that, but not grief for what's been lost necessarily. We'll get, we'll talk more about it as we get into these other songs. Okay. Anything Uh, else on tunnels? So this was the band's first single. It was released as a seven inch vinyl in 2004. The B side was recording of the song, my buddy by Butler's grandfather. Oh, Okay. It's a nice homage. Yeah. It was number 10 on Pitchfork's top 500 tracks of the 2000s. The music video. Really? Yeah. Number 10. This is, I mean, this is it. This is maybe my favorite song from the album. The music, have you seen the music video? No, I did not get a chance to watch the music video. So the music video uses paper cutout animation, similar to like Monty Python. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then that's intercut with clips of the band performing the song in this sort of weird studio space. There's the band and then there's also like the roof of a house behind them. Hmm. And I think like there's a guitarist like playing on the roof, but they're like clearly inside. It's funny you should mention Monty Python because I feel like the cover itself also reminds me of that. Oh yeah, for sure. I think think that's sort of where the cutout animation is getting its inspiration from. Lucian Flores of Beats Per Minute magazine says the song has all the elements of a great Arcade Fire song. It has a head-bobbing rhythm section, lyrics that harken back to an imperfect past, a seamless blend of instruments, and a cathartic coda. Yeah, I, I buy that. I can't find a reasonable disagreement to that assessment. No, this is a, it's a great song. I, yeah. I have nothing bad to say about this one. So that leads us into the next neighborhood, neighborhood number two, like... Yeah, the accordion is so just like Neutral Milk Hotel, tracing a line from there through this song to like Gogo Bordello, <laughs> maybe, if I could be so indulgent. The question I had factually is I'm like, okay, you know, Laika was the first Soviet space dog. Yes. And so like, oh, Alex should have been named Laika as the lyric. First off, like Laika was a girl dog. And why not Belka of like the couple Belka and Strelka, who were like the male and female dog that were sent up together? It's because no one knows Belka and Strelka. I know Belka and Strelka. Well, you do because you're a nerd and I'm a nerd too. But if you had asked me yesterday about if, who Belka and Strelka would, I wouldn't have been able to. Um, I think it would have still worked lyrically. So, you know, those are my notes. That's a deeper cut. Like, I don't think people have gotten that reference is what I'm saying. Like, Laika is at least, like, Laika is also the name of, like, a stop act. Like, uh, what? you just keep saying the word. But like a production company. They've made, like, Coraline and Kubo and the Two Strings. Oh! Yeah, they do all the stop motion animation. Oh, okay. founded by the, like, the guy who owns Nike is, like, 
his dad. So that's why they basically don't have to worry about if their money movies actually make money. Got <laughs> that Nike money. Yeah, they just get Nike money. And so, but you're talking about Alexander mm-hmm. and how you know, as the lyrics say, should have been named Leica. So if you haven't listened to the word analyzed the song's lyric, the reason that Alexander should have been named Leica is that Alexander that the song is about goes off out on this adventure. And while the adventure is, you know, for the good of the neighborhood, uh, it ultimately leads to Alexander's death. And that's... So it's Alexander the Great. That's the arc of the song. Well, I think that, the that's, one, that's one reading. Some people have speculated the song is about Alexander McCandless, the guy from mm-hmm. Into the Wild. Oh. Who, yeah, he abandons his possessions and family to go on an adventure of personal freedom, but that also ultimately led to his death. Let's see, um, the movie didn't come out until 07. Well, I mean, it's a real event based on a Yeah, real event. but like, like would have been, when did the book come out? I, I don't know. 97. Okay. So yeah, it's possible. I mean, would I don't think accessible. it's like, it's like Arcade Fire hasn't confirmed that. It's just sort of a theory that f- fans have had. It fits. The This was also, this was the second single from the album. And now, Pat, you have a chance to win $5. Okay. I'm going to ask you the question. I'll, if you get this right, I'll venue you $5 right now. God damn it. <laughs> what do you got from me, Derek? As I said, this was the second single from the album. What was the B-side for this single? Okay, so you said the first single was Neighborhood Number 1. The B-side was a track from... Yes, it was My Buddy by his grandfather. His grandfather. Yep. What was the B-side for this song? For like... Uh, can I get... Is it any other track on this album? It is not. <laughs> okay, I give up. I have no idea. It is also my buddy. They did the, <laughs> they did the same B-side for Neighborhood Number 1 and Neighborhood Number 2. Hey, if it worked the first time, man. The music video for this one also continues using the paper cutout animation, but this time it's just animation. There's no, you don't see the band performing the song at all. There's a lot to like about this song. I particularly like there's these descending guitar chords towards the end of the but I was going to ask you what you thought of Regine's background vocals. It's a little dissonant in my opinion, but I'll... it's a counterpoint. You know, she's she's throwing her voice up there. It stands out. Certainly. It, it certainly stands because out. Because it's discordant, but. I don't think it pulls away. I mean, I, I think there's some certain things in other songs that like juked me more. Yeah, for sure. I, I agree with you that it doesn't pull away, but there's, it almost reminds me of Yoko Ono performing with John Lennon right. and Chuck Berry. I don't know. <laughs> you've seen that clip where she just starts like yodeling and the engineers have to like cut her mic. <laughs> but like when she starts doing it, Chuck Berry's eyes just go wide. It's like, what is happening? Well, bolder than to leave it in here. I no, guess. yeah, I, it it makes sense in the larger context of the song, but she's just coming at it from just like a different angle from everything else that's happening. Yeah, and I have I have mixed feelings about it. I don't hate it; hate's a strong word, but I also don't love it. Yeah, I mean, there's certain parts where, as like backup or accompaniment to lyrics or in harmony, she works well. But I really appreciated her role when she's like actually taking the lead in vocals on a lot of the oh, songs yeah. coming. I out. mean, Haiti especially. We'll talk about that more. I'm not saying she's a bad singer. I'm just saying in this particular instance, the notes aren't vibing with me. Okay, so that was neighborhood number two. Moving on to the third track, and God forgive me, 
Who well, allow, allow, allow me. Allow me. I, I, I took French for seven sure. years. Une année sans lumière. So this is sort of the intermission in the larger neighborhood suite. Mm -hmm. So we have neighborhoods one, two, three, and four, and this is in right in the middle of it. Isn't it like kind of refreshing though to hear popular music with well-spoken French, especially someone who's learned it instead of just something garbled by an untrained English tongue such as mine? It sounds like you have a specific example in mind. Well, I mean, like voulez-vous coucher avec moi? It's good to know you're still listening to the hits of the early 2000s. Yeah, well, I mean, I had to get in the mindset for, for funerals. <laughs> That's so. fair. Yeah, I do agree that this is a good change of pace from the previous up-tempo songs from the album. So mm-hmm. Neighborhoods 1 and 2 both come with a lot of power. This sort of slows it down, gives you a little reset. But I do think it's interesting that this breaks up the four-part Neighborhood Suite. If I was sort of putting these tracks together, I would just go neighborhood one, two, three, four, and that would be side one. Yeah, I mean, you can have Shy on Your Crazy Diamond parts one through seven. Yeah, for example. The song, parts of it are in French. If you don't speak French, here's the translation. The Pat, I don't know if you saw this, but they go, hey, the street lights are all burnt out. A year without light. Mm-hmm. I mount a horse that is wearing blinders. Hey, my eyes are shooting sparks. At night, my eyes light you up. Don't tell your father. He's wearing blinders. And they do the chorus, which is in English, which they say, hey, your old man should know. If you see a shadow, there's something there. And that's basically the whole song. They repeat different parts of it. Yeah. But that's... And in English. Yeah. Yeah. Thematically here, like, people are saying, oh, you're without light. Like, you know, you're supposed to grieve for a year or whatever. But is there a, I guess, more sophisticated and not just... I think the song is about denial, specifically the the references to the blinders. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, your old man should know that if you see a shadow, there's something there. It's like, oh, like, maybe, I don't know if the song's about Regine's father, but, you know, Regine's mom died, and now her father is just, like, not dealing with it. Like, he's, like, just emotionally just not processing it and living his life. It might be about someone someone else's father. Um, If you think about, though, in the backseat, yeah. Like, that's about her coming to take a more active part in her own life. Mm-hmm. And is the shadow not Regine's then? And she's asking for her father to see her as being the something that exists. Oh, possibly. I was reading it as the shadow being sort of the the darkness of the mother's death. And then having to just emotionally, like, that's there. You have to deal with it. You can't just ignore that and continue to live your life. Despite being a slower song, though, the song does get upbeat right at the end, mm-hmm. build, building momentum into the next track. I did have a note here. The strings that come in in like two minutes and 29 seconds gave me a very Radiohead vibe. It's right in that transition, okay. which I liked. It's just kind of like hollow strings, like on their own in the dark, kind of.
so yeah, I, I was really happy to, to kind of hear that as a unique yeah, sound. You're, because... you're the bigger Radiohead fan than I am, so I'll have to listen to that when we do our Radiohead episodes. Mm-hmm. So, okay, should we move to back into the neighborhood suite yep. with number three, Power Out? Yeah, so this song opens like a thunderburst. Yeah, it's a very hard transition from the softness of Unane. Yeah, it literally just goes boom. But then like immediately, almost immediately backs off with this playful xylophone, which I think is a fun contrast. Mm -hmm. Talked about different reads on the song. I don't know what your read was, but this song is about coming to grips with the realities of society. That basically that wealth and power are in the hands of a few. And then as the young adults are setting out on their own, again, uncertain to be out the future. As we mentioned in the cold open for this episode, this is the song that was inspired by the North American ice storm of 1998, which left Montreal in a blackout for a week. You know, there's lyrics about the kids dying out in the snow. The song's literally titled Power Out. Yeah, so, you couldn't um, make it any more obvious. Yeah, the lyrics are sort of metaphorical, ambiguous, but they're certainly dark. And there's this sort of theme of hopelessness. But despite these pessimistic lyrics, Butler indicates that the lyrics can also be uplifting. So the lyric says, and the power's out in the heart of man, take it from your heart, put it in your hand. And he said in an interview, if there's something fucked up in your heart, you're going to put in your hand as a sword. So sort of using perhaps, you know, tragedy and trauma as inspiration to make art or... So this was kind of a modest mousy vibe from the vocals in this one. Like they were just kind of like thin and screechy, especially when he's getting to the top of his range. I'm not quite sure it worked here, though. Modest Mouse, that's kind of, I feel like their whole thing is like wild vocals on top of like their backing. But I'm not sure if here I felt like it was a little too thin given like how robust the accompaniment is. The song is definitely like instruments first. Again, that just big bass opening. It's it's here to kick ass, but also <laughs> with a fun xylophone. So this was the third single from the album. They're releasing the singles, basically one, two, three. Four isn't released as a single, oddly enough, but it's peaked at number 26 on the UK singles chart, mm. which is fun. The Arcade Fire wouldn't have a single on the US chart until Reflector, their fourth album. Uh, oh, really? Yeah. Can so not even Wake Up, Crown of Love, any of that no, business? not even anything from Neon Bible or even The Suburbs, which they won album the year yeah. for. But yeah, so Reflector, the I think the title track off of that peaked at number 99 on the Billboard Hot 100. <laughs> so just barely making it on there. I guess enough after winning album of the year, people are going to check out your next album. This song won the 2006 Juno Award for Songwriter of the Year. And then in the video, again, using animation, but this time instead of paper cutouts, they're now doing computer animation. And you see sort of this conflict between the people who own the power plant Versus these like little gremlin dudes who are coming in to like sabotage the power plant. Are we the gremlins? I think so. We're clearly meant to like cheer for the gremlins because they a eventually succeed. Spoiler alert, I guess. But b also the owners of the power plant are like depicted as these fat cats and uh, mm, Montgomery Burns. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, what do you have to say about Seven Kettles Neighborhood? neighborhood so closing out the neighborhood suite. I don't know when 
I don't have a lot to say about this one. This is, I think, one of the weaker tracks from the album. Oh, I thought it was kind of fun. There's it does start with layers. There's layers. It's I don't think it's the weakest. It's just not my favorite. Mm. It's definitely the weakest of the neighborhood suite. Yeah. Um, It does start with the sound. You can hear those titular seven kettles blowing their steam, which I think is fun. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it comes back again at like two fifty three minute mark. But they the kettles are also kind of fading these scratchy strings in a way. But I think it would work really well as like an unplugged or acoustic edition. I did not also have time to like go and seek out every remix and re-recording <laughs> and everything here. In reading the reviews of this, and I know we're gonna get to a lot of this later, but everyone compares okay, it's Arcade Fire, it's Arena Rock, it's you know, this reincarnation of Springsteen and U2, which I think the most generous interpretation, maybe the vocal here, the vocals here have a delivery that's a little Springstonian, <laughs> Springsteenian. I think Springsteenian. Springsteenian. Yeah, this was the only point during the entire album that it was actually called, you know, came into my mind. Of yeah, like, I'd agree with that. There's some resemblance, but U2 sucks. And this is not the boss. I mean, yeah, I think it's more like David Bowie than anything. I mean, like yeah. they, Bowie would collaborate with them on later projects. It's just lazy music journalism yeah. is what it is. I can maybe see Springsteen in that there's a large band involved. <laughs> Win Butler, the East Street. Yeah, Win Butler, the East Street band. So up next, we have Crown of Love. I see that like a lot of people like this song. Notes. This is my least favorite song from the album. I, I don't get I'm it. I'm surprised man. to hear that a lot of people like it. Yeah. Because it's to me, this is the song that doesn't fit the rest of the album. No, it's just it's, the complete like trudge through the muck. The first two thirds of it are. But so this is a basically a breakup song. It's like someone mm-hmm. broke up with Wynn Butler, presumably. It's a post breakup song. Yeah, it's, it's a post breakup like, It's like years after it's like the fact. You broke up with me and now I'm feeling bad about it. Yeah, it's okay. an awful lot to ask from a woman that's already moved on. Oh, you know, forgive me if you still love me, right? Yeah. You still love me, right? I have a note here that Wynn Butler sounds like a ghoul on this track. <laughs> so, like I said, I have a theory about this song that, okay, this is all not confirmed. This is just me speculating. But I think they they needed another song to sort of round out the album. Wynn Butler wrote this song in high school. Like, just the lyrics, probably. Because I think the the instrumentation is decent. Yeah. But the lyrics are, they they remind me of something that someone would write in high school. They feel like, you know, it's the same topic that Olivia Rodrigo is writing about, right? There's a lot of breakup (laughs) songs. (laughs) The lyrics feel like they're written by a high schooler, not someone in grad school. You know, it's got, I carved your names across my eyelids. You pray for rain. I pray for blindness. It's like, oh, you just want something to sort of blur out the relationship. I can't. Even when I close my eyes, I'm reminded of the relationship. That's what he's saying there. But of course, it's a hard to, and it's hard to write a breakup song. Like, and, you know, maybe this isn't true. It's hard to write a breakup song without sounding like a lovesick teenager. But 
the reason I think this is true, this is sort of the crux of my theory, is that he wrote this in high school, but now, you know, even as a young adult, you know, he's probably 22, 23 when this when he's recording this. Mm-hmm. He knows that it's silly. You know, they needed a song around this out. He said, hey, here are some lyrics that I wrote. And that's why in the last third of the song, it goes into this disco beat. Yeah, you have the, the one minute dance party. Yeah, it just goes into this dance party then. And that's sort of that to me, that's when just saying like winking at us and being like, Yeah, I know this is just a little and so now we're gonna dance. Yeah. But that, that's my theory. I do think so, despite, you know, the overall melodrama of this breakup song, there are some interesting things that Wynn does lyrically here. He does this thing where he sort of subverts your expectation. When the mom comes in, you hear he says a line about her placing his hand on his shoulder. And then he says he shrugged it off. And it's like, but then the chorus comes in with the crown of love or the pain of love. And it's like, well, now what is shrugged off? Was it the hand or is he shrugging off the pain of love? And then that's actually, it's done a couple times in the song where he says there's something, something snuffed out. And then mm. it's like, oh, what was snuffed out? The candle or whatever? Or was it the pain of love that was snuffed out? The way it's presented in the song, you think it's one thing, but then you don't realize that it's maybe another thing until it's repeated later again. And so the dance party is him actually getting over it. Yeah, it can yeah, be something else now. <laughs> I mean, maybe, yeah. That, that's, uh, that's another read. Next on the list here would be Wake Up. This is my favorite on the album. Super easy to sing along to. Oh, yeah. So we're talking about like arena rock, like people are going to lose their shit. Yeah, this was on almost my pick for favorite from the album. It was a close call between this and Tunnels. Like I said, I saw this live in concert and lost my mind. It was amazing. Oh, my God. That's so good. So this was the fifth single from the album. It was released as a one-sided seven-inch vinyl in November 2004. No B-side. It was... It just sounds lazy. It you feels gotta... like a it feels like a waste of vinyl, right? Uh, I don't know. What's the actual cost of like getting a, you know a master plate made to press yeah. the second side of it? I mean, just you've got the plate from my buddy. <laughs> yes, three, let three, it grow, man. Yeah. I wouldn't even be mad, you know. At that point, <laughs> it's a song about basically about realizing your potential, right? Oh, you so, think so? I think so. I had a different read on it. But oh, let me know. For it. Okay, so. Maybe this is taking the lyrics a little literally, but I thought it was a lesson of how, you know, one is tempted to take the cynicism, nihilism into your heart when you're younger, but telling that you that, you know, realize you're later that you're poorer for having done so. I think there's a Onion article that's 28-year-old gives sage advice to a friend in younger 20s. (laughs) 
Yeah, I, I don't know if that's maybe a bit too literal. Yeah, I mean, my, so my, I read it was about realizing your potential, basically waking up to what you're capable of, you know, and that's basically hanging off the line of like, with my lightning bolts glowing, I can see where I am going. Yeah, do you it's take like, your moments of clarity then kind of as they come? Yeah, it's like by taking, you know, your lightning bolts, this realization of your power, and now now that you have these, you have this path forward. Yeah. Rolling Stone named this song the 42nd greatest song of the 2000s. This is a different list than the Pitchfork list that I mentioned earlier, so I can't compare apples to apples. Sure. But the song was played at the beginning of u two shows on their Vertigo tour in 2005. I don't know why they couldn't play their own songs. <laughs> yeah, I went to the University of Wisconsin, and before every Badger game, every football game, the like pump up video that they would play would be the music for it was where the streets have no name. <laughs> the pump up. Yeah. yeah. Hey, it got us going. I mean, you have to remember like the entire student section is drunk at this point. <laughs> so yeah, you'll get pumped up to anything. I guess this is the other track where, yeah, the last minute 30 of it, it has that sped up transition like in crown of love. Mm. I don't know if it, that mirroring of Crown of Love means anything. I didn't get anything out of it. It's a very much a different upbeat situation, though, because the Crown of Love is more like a disco four on the floor kind of feel. Sure. This is more joyous. It doesn't feel like a dance party is what I mean to say. Sure. It's, you know, the dawning of the age of Aquarius. Exactly. Yeah. So speaking of, you know, where the streets have no name and pump up songs, this song also has a history with sports. It was used as the pregame intro song for the New York Rangers during the 2006-2007 NHL season. All which right. sort of made me wonder, like, how did the Montreal Canadiens feel about that? Because <laughs> Arcade Fire Home is... Team. Arcade Fire, to me, is the most famous band from Montreal. I can't think of any others off the top of my head of montreal of montreal i guess <laughs> but like arcade fire is certainly above of montreal i feel like you know when the canadians are playing the rangers they'd be like wait this is is this for us is this what's going on, oh, what's going on? but um, one of the reviews stereogum like funeral at 10 years is like oh you know staying power of this album is evidenced by its use in commercials and movies sure and I'm like, which ones? Oh, let me and tell I was you. not able. Let me tell you. Tell me, Derek. This, this song was used. They Arcade Fire licensed a song to play in commercials doing Super Bowl 44. If I'm reading XLIV. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 44. All the proceeds that the band got from that went to relief efforts for the 2010 earthquake in Haiti. All um, right. And then, probably most famously, in my opinion, a new version of the song was recorded and featured in the trailer for 2009's Where the Wild Things Are movie. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's... I'm totally putting that together. I, I think totally that, was that. that a, was that a Spike Jones joint? I think it was. I think it was, too. This song also made it on the UK singles chart, came in, peaked at number 29. Yeah, I think their singles on this were all, all over the place. Yeah. Which is just a, again, a product of it being week by week for some of these charts versus like the album as a whole. Yeah. I'm doing well. Are we ready to move on to the next track? Yeah, of course. I am excited about this one. Mm-hmm. 
the soundscape of the waves crashing upon the beach Ooh. in the beginning. So nice. So this song is low. It doesn't sound like it. I'll admit, but this song is low key. The most metal song on the album. Oh yeah. It's about Duvalier. It's about Duvalier and the vengeance that Regine Chassagne wants to deliver upon him and his family. You want to dive into that? Dissect yeah. the lyrics a little bit? Well, so first got to start with who was Francois Duvalier. He was president of Haiti from 1957 until his death in 1971. Capital B, bad dude. At which point his son took over as president. I mean, we can say dictator of Haiti. It was a harsh dictatorship that killed or tortured thousands of Haitians. Hundreds of thousands fled the country, including Regine's parents who fled to Montreal. Is it true that like her family had some experience? Like, yeah. Didn't her aunt or something? Yeah, so like there's a lyric in the song, which is in French, but if you translate it to English, she's saying, my unborn cousins haunt Duvalier's nights. That lyric refers to Regine's cousins who miscarried because of treatment from Duvalier's men, as well as others who never had the chance to be conceived due to the murder of Regine's aunts and uncles. And so it's literally just saying, like, I have these family members who were never born, and now they are haunting you, Duvalier. It's the line, which is in English, the, like, guns can't kill what soldiers can't see. Like, I'm reading that as, like, oh, you can't kill these ghosts because you can't see them. They're haunting you. Go fuck yourself. Yeah. The fucking... It's so fucking metal. At the same time, though, at three minutes and 15 seconds, the, like, melody main theme is repeated on the xylophone, which is kind of fun. <laughs> Um, you do. It's it's kind of light music though for what she's. No, absolutely. About. That's the thing that tricks you, especially if you don't know what she's saying in French. It's you know you just sort of like. And then all of a sudden she's like, "Guns can't kill what soldiers can't see." In English, it's like, "What? Who? Why are we talking about guns and soldiers?" There is at one point this like repetitive piano note that comes in. It's just. And it just repeats. It's it's just a rhythm that repeats at the same note. It's about starts about halfway through the song, and in my opinion, it gets a little grating for how long it goes because it's just the same note that's repeating, and it seems like on top of the mix, and it's gets a little distracting for me. But yeah, I did catch that. Yeah, but it's such that you feel this sense of relief when it stops, <laughs> which I don't know if like that was an intentional thing they were going for that like trying to earn that sense of relief build some tension during the song yeah sure. but it's there this is also the obviously this is the first of the two songs of the album where regine has the lead vocals mm-hmm. i think she shines here so much more brightly not i guess not so much more but i like this one versus in the back seat this one is definitely more melodic yeah. in the back seat very tight song oh did you catch the ambulance siren no on the end of it yeah layered under like a lot of different things. well yeah because the end of it you've got the bass beat which actually leads directly into the next song mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a little bit of an amb- ambulance siren that i caught i think underneath it all uh, are you sure it wasn't at the beginning of rebellion i know i actually rewinded <laughs> i did try to make sure Maybe it's, hard just stop, it's, it's, it's a seamless transition from one song into the next mm-hmm. one of the things i noted was that i mean with the exception of like power out i guess that references a historical event this is one of the songs that moves beyond like personal experience and grief to like 
something that affected a broader range of people. Mm-hmm. Like obviously like Regine has a personal connection to the horrors of Duvalier. Yeah. But yeah, this like kind of had like, I guess a bit more global reach or a bigger perspective in the song than some of the other ones, which was nice to see. And, you know, maybe that's just like the way Regine thinks and, mm-hmm. and writes lyrics. This next song is Rebellion Lies. Mm-hmm. Rebellion in parentheses lies. This is the fourth single from the album. I said that Neighborhood 1, 2, and 3 were the first three, and then Rebellion Lies, and then Wake Up is sort of the single release order there. My, I don't know what your read of the song was, but my read was this about poor parental guidance and the lies that parents tell their children. Yeah, I got that kind of like, oh, you know, you need to go to sleep. There's a lyric alluding to like, oh, you know, You'll die sooner without sleep than without water. And I got to call bullshit on that because (laughs) I've been awake for like three days straight and didn't die. There's been people who've been awake for like 10 days in like, you know, a scientific setting and have lived. The fun thing, though, is you do start hallucinating after about like the third day. And also the lyrical structure here is different from a lot of the other songs. Did you kind of notice that? I did not. Mostly just A, B, A, B, A, B, alternating either the same lines or riffs on the same line, mm-hmm. or riffs on the same lyrics. But I think it kind of works here. Each time they're spoken or sung, there's a different delivery to it. And so you have a repeating structure of the same or similar lyrics, but it allows that to just be a base of the song. And it's actually the rest of the instruments that evolve with each repetition over the course of it. Mm-hmm. So you get like a resampling basically of those same lyrics, but you could pay more attention to how the instruments are responding rather than the vocalist. So this song peaked number 19 on the UK singles chart, which is the band's best performance on the chart to date. Again, best performance on the US chart was the title track from Reflector for their fourth album at number mm-hmm. 99. But in the UK, they tried it much better over there. This song is frequently the closing song at Arcade Fire shows. I've only mm-hmm. been to the one at Lollapalooza, which my memory was they clicked with Wake Up, but Wake Up was certainly the highlight for me from that show. And I don't know if you saw the music video for this one either. No? No. It's a, there's no animation in this one. This is all live action. The band is walking around a suburban neighborhood playing their instruments, and there's a bunch of children just like sleeping on the ground outside. <laughs> And as the band passes them, the children wake up and begin following the band to a cemetery where they then bury Butler and Shasanya in fallen leaves. And that's the whole video. Okay. So sort of this Pied Piper thing. And then Butler and Shasanya lie on the ground and the children bury them in leaves. And sounds like a good time. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they had a lot of fun recording it. Although, you know, (laughs) but yeah, the old WC Fields quote is like never work with children and animals so maybe they had difficult wrangling the children but so the final song of the track in the backseat regine comes up again as lead vocals yep. I like the 
a literal level, the song is about Regine getting a taxi to her mother's funeral because she couldn't drive. She didn't have a driver's license at the time. But it's also a metaphor for how when we're children, our parents have control over our lives. They're in the you know metaphorical driver's seat. Mm-hmm. So Regine is singing about finding the comfort in letting someone else make decisions for her. But now that she's growing older, the people in her family are dying and she's realizing that she is slowly being forced into the driver's seat and needs to start making her own decisions. Yeah, definitely a story about like realizing you have agency yeah. in your own life. And that's where, you know, the, the the big quote that's repeated in the song is, I've been learning to drive my whole life. So it's kind of a simple metaphor, but like it's, it's really artistically done. Yeah, yeah, I think it's really great. This is maybe one, this is one of my top three songs from the album. It starts out slow and sort of sleepy, but then as the song goes on, it, Regine really brings it. really just you know bring some power but i still felt that like the guitar is kind of overpowered even compared to yeah. the vocal performance mm-hmm. that machine brings all right well i think it's time to take a break and listen to another word from our sponsors smell the rich aroma of haitian coffee beans and start your morning with a cup of fair trade coffee from wake up roasters Their special brewing method uses seven kettles to deliver unique blends full of flavor. If you're feeling like something filled up your heart with nothing, try filling up your cup with the bold flavors of Wake Up brand coffee. After just one cup, you'll feel like you've been put on a rocket to space, like a canine cosmonaut. With your lightning bolts aglowing, you'll finally have the energy to see where you are going. Try the smooth flavor of the Crown of Love Blonde Roast, or, if you're feeling adventurous, try the bold flavors of the Rebellion Dark Roast. Get into the driver's seat and choose the blend that's right for you. Right now, Wake Up Roasters is offering a 10% discount on all orders over $50 if you use their promo code NOMOSS. That's Wake Up Roasters promo code NOMOSS. Having dealt with the album song by song, should we talk about some of the commentary on the album, some of the reviews? And given that this is a podcast about the Rolling Stones list of the 500 greatest albums of all time, Should we not go to the horse's mouth and see what Rolling Stones had to say? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so every album on the list has a little blurb that Rolling Stone wrote up just to describe what the album's about. And this is what they had to say about Funeral. Loss, love, forced coming of age, and fragile generational hope. Arcade Fire's debut touched on all these themes as it defined the independent rock of the 2000s. Built on family ties, leader Wynn Butler, his wife Regine Chitanya, his brother Will, the Montreal band made symphonic rock that truly rocked, simultaneously outsized and deeply personal, like the best pop. But for its sad realism, Butler's is music that still finds solace and purpose in communal celebration. Which I think is a decent summary of the album. Yeah, the communal celebration. A lot of these talked about like how personal it is. And I get personal being for, it's a personal album to the musicians. Someone talked about like a personal connection to the listener and I'm not sure I felt that. I mean, like, yeah, granted, I've, like, experienced loss in my own life, and it's relatable. But it's not, like, to borrow a, a term that we've thrown around before, like, parasocial relationship. 
So what did critics at the time think about this album? Yeah, I picked a couple here in no particular order. I looked at Tiny Mixtapes, Pitchfork, and Stereo Gum. Um, Let's start with Tiny Mixtapes. It's one of my favorite little weird websites on hiatus currently, RIP. But they said that, you know, this shows that the band can draw from a variety of sources of inspiration for the music. They noted Motown, Neutral Milk Hotel, New Order, the Pixies, Talking Heads as, you know, musical inspiration. One of the last notes they leave it on, though, is that the funeral here is grief packaged like an Irish wake and not like a traditional funeral. Mm -hmm. And I think they actually hit, you know, hit it on the nose with that one. Derek, did you read the Pitchfork review? No, I didn't read it. But so if you want to, I had to sort of have an overview of how they. Yeah, my quotes. I have three notes here. They call it a sincere album. Sure. Again, personal to Will and Regine. Sure. They said that the transition in Crown of Love is important, which I I, uh, I disagree with. Yeah, <laughs> it's very debatable. And then the last one I saw was Stereogum that did a review when at the 10th anniversary of Funeral. The one thing I liked about Stereogum is they went through and talked about some pioneering musical concepts. Like a lot of the coverage here talks about or the coverage after the fact talks about how oh, this album is like the standard defined indie rock for decades to come. But some of the things that Stereo Gum actually like qualified that statement with, they're like the singy-songy choral exuberance definitely is in there. It definitely is pervasive through indie rock. Or- orchestral instrumentation, yep, that's there. I mean, Sufjan Stevens was also releasing music at the same time. Illinois came out a couple years later and I think definitely leaned in to the, the <laughs> yeah. whole orchestra aspect of it. Stereogum also noted Madcap Percussion. Yep. They also said Springsteen Love. I have that in quotes. And Yeah, I've listened to some Springsteen music. I'm going to listen to more because of this podcast. Yeah, The Boss, this is not. Yeah, I, I don't hear it. And then going back to the orchestral instrumentation, the large ensemble crew that's mm-hmm. constantly rotating a lot of bands have pulled it that way. So, yeah, I think they actually, those are actually like definable concepts and yeah, things you can take away is like, you know, we know who their musical influences were like Modest Mouse, Bright Eyes, Rapture, Decemberist, Neutral Milk Hotel, but you can at least see quantitatively, qualitatively what this album gave to the rest of indie rock. Yeah. I mean, I think the only thing I'll add to that is the Pitchfork review. They gave it a 9.7 out of 10. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ultimately ranked it as number one on their list of the top 50 albums of the year, as well as number two on the top 200 albums of the 2000s. Yeah, this album, like, I think I saw a list of like 20 different, like, top albums of the 2010s, and it was like consistently within the top 10 of them. Yeah. Pitchfork's number one album of the 2000s was Radiohead's Kid A, which we'll talk about on a later yeah. episode. But the Pitchfork review is frequently cited as a key factor that propelled the album's success. Basically, if it wasn't for this Pitchfork review, it, we might not have Arcade Fire as we know them today. Pretty much universal acclaim when it came out. Yeah. It'd be, I mean, so we worked through it. We had like, I'm going to consider some of my comments just to be nitpicks. And we have our favorites and our least favorite songs, but like, yeah, generally it's it's a good album. Yeah. <laughs> TM. <laughs> you know. The album was nominated for one Grammy Award, uh, Best Alternative U- Music Album, losing to The White Stripes' Get Behind Me, Satan. 
Yeah. Oh, I want to point out, yeah, the sure. competitors for that nominee, the other nominees were Bex Guero, Death Cab for Cuties, Plans. Oh, so good. I don't know. Okay. Did you even go to high school, Derek? I know transatlanticism. <laughs> Plans is good, though. And then You Could Have It So Much Better by Franz Ferdinand, which is like, meh. Oh, see, that's what I was listening to. From that year, though, Arcade Fire is the only one that is included in the RS500, yeah. so I guess they got the last laugh there. <laughs> Oh, yeah. So at the 2005 Grammys, the album of the year nominees were Kanye West's Late Registration, which, mm-hmm. you know, that's going to be a future episode. The Emancipation of Mimi by Mariah Carey, that's going to be a future episode. Oops. And then we have three others who we won't be talking about later. We've got Chaos and Creation in the Backyard by Paul McCartney. Sort of feels like whenever Paul McCartney releases an album, it's going to get nominated for album of the year. That's just maybe a big snub. <laughs> yeah. We also have Love Angel Music Baby by Gwen Stefani, <laughs> back when she was relevant. And, of course, the the winner, we've already talked about him a bit on this episode, U2, with How, Dis- How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. I mean, that's part of the fun for us, is just getting to listen to music. I hope, yeah, you know, absolutely. you guys listening along. Yeah, please listen along. That's the, that's the whole point of this thing. Also, the list is open, so certainly if you guys have any suggestions... Of what to cover next, we have well, 498 other options here. <laughs> and actually, I'm going to take a second here to do our call to action. If you guys have enjoyed listening to this at all, please like this episode, comment if you have something to say in the comments. Make sure to subscribe to our channel so that you'll get alerted when there's new episodes. So, after the release of Funeral, Arcade Fire goes on to significant success. Yeah, and, Bible yeah, suburbs. Yeah, exactly. The band purchases a defunct church in rural Quebec, which they converted into a recording studio. That church included an organ, which you can hear on Neon Bible is the organ in that church. Mm. Honestly, I'm surprised that Neon Bible isn't on the list of 500 top 500 albums. I, Great. I think both Funeral and Neon Bible should be. We'll talk about that more in our final thoughts. The band... Had an appearance on Saturday Night Live, first of many, but on their first appearance, Wynn Butler's guitar strings break, prompting him to smash the guitar. So that's fun. Because uh, <laughs> what else are you going to do? Ask for new strings? No. Yeah. It's uh, live. Yeah, exactly. I suppose you could have a roadie run in with a new guitar, but what fun is that? Speaking of Neon Bible, the band's second album also lost to the White Stripes at the Grammys, White Stripes' Icky Thump, which is a fantastic album. It's a more satisfying loss than yeah. to get behind me. See, yeah, Icky Thump is definitely the better of those two White Stripes albums. The band's third album, The Suburbs, wins album of the year. It comes out of sort of almost out of nowhere, really. I don't have who it beat in my notes here, but in my, I remember when that happened, and in my opinion, I, my reaction was like I couldn't believe it because, in my opinion, The Suburbs is was the weakest of the three Arcade Fire albums that had come out at the time. Yeah, right. So after winning album of the year, the band's fourth album, Reflector, which we talked about a little bit, Mm -hmm. also lost best alternative album. Felt like every Arcade Fire album gets nominated for best alternative album and then loses. But this time, instead of the White Stripes, they lost to St. Vincent's self-titled album, St. Vincent, which I was a late adopter to that one. I didn't find it until like a couple of years after it came out. And it's one of the favorites. Yeah, Um, it's so good. Fantastic. Also in 2013, the band composed the score for the movie Her, along with longtime collaborator Owen Pallett, which mm-hmm. received an Oscar nomination. 
the band's fifth album, Everything Now, which, you know, following the tradition of almost every other Arcade Fire before it gets nominated for Best Alternative Album. And loses. loses. This time to, to White Stripes? This time to The National with Sleek Well Beast. Oh, really? Yeah. After Everything Now, the band's most recent album, again, following the tradition of Arcade Fire, gets nominated for Best Alternative Album and loses. This time to Wet Leg? So, I mean, check out Wet Leg, I guess. That's Um, the name of a band? And their album. So, 2002 then rolls around, and this was an eventful year for Arcade Fire, to say the least. 2002? Yeah, not necessarily relating to their music. 2022? 2022, rather. Eventful year for Arcade Fire, not necessarily relating to their music, but stuff outside of that. Uh, Wynn's brother, Will, the question mark bassist. A bassist. A bassist in the band leaves in March 2022. And then in August, Wynn Butler was accused of sexual misconduct. Butler and Chisanya have denied the allegations and claim all encounters had been consensual. But the allegations did cause Feist to drop out as the opening act for Arcade Fire's European tour and Beck to drop out as the opener for their North American tour. Well, there, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do we have to end every single one of these episodes with the recent sexual assault allegations? It might get a little tiresome. Only once they stop sexually assaulting people. (laughs) Anyway, uh, final thoughts. Yeah, I think it's a great album. I think I can think of at least one album that's on the top 500 that's worse than it. Yeah. So (laughs) Presumably both of you two's albums. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, Arcade Fire has gotten a lot of criticism in the last decade or so for being a hipster band. That word means nothing, though. It, I mean, now it doesn't mean anything. It didn't mean anything at the time. I mean, circa 2012, I felt like it had a had a meaning. That being said, I think this remains a killer debut album. Uh, oh, yeah. It basically, it. Yeah, it basically redefined what was possible for indie musicians. It, it practically gave us the genre of indie rock as we know it today. I mean, all those bands that you listed that were on Merge, Merge, record, Merge yeah. Records, like, there's an argument that we wouldn't know those bands if not for Arcade Fire. Like, Arcade Fire success gave that record label the financial ability to support all of those artists. Yeah, to build out that sound. It deserves a spot on the list. Like, I Absolutely. think it's important. It's influential. Yeah, it, and it's obviously very personal as well. It's amazingly constructed as well. It's, there's a lot going for it. So I agree. It should actually be on the list. I personally that think that 500 is way too low for it to be on the bubble of being on the list at all. On the 2012 list, it was number 151. But I agree that that ranking was perhaps too high. I would sure. be comfortable seeing it probably the 250 to 350 range, somewhere in there. Mm-hmm. I mean, to be honest, like I, I talked about how one of the only other, well, the only other band on Merge Records that has an album on the list is Neutral Hotel mm-hmm. 376. And I think that album is more on the bubble. And I think that maybe Funeral should be more like 376. Yeah. So that's what we thought of Funeral. But what did you think of Funeral? Be sure to leave a comment on this episode with your thoughts on the album, and we might read it on the show. Derek, did you bring with you today any album recommendation following Funeral here? I did. So as I mentioned earlier, my recommendation is uh, one of Owen Pallett's albums, their album Heartland, which was released in 2010. As soon as I got on the horse, I 
Um, it was named as one of the albums of the year when I worked for my college newspaper. They named it one of the top 10 albums of the year. I hadn't heard of it at that point. And I was like, well, if this newspaper that I work for thinks it's great, I should give it a listen. Mm-hmm. And I've pretty much been listening to it ever since. Pallet toured with Arcade Fire and had been credited as an arranger and instrumentalist on each of their albums. In fact, in 2005, they released a song titled This Is the Dream of Win and Regine, <laughs> which is about Win and Regine and the backlash Arcade Fire received from the Montreal indie community after finding mainstream success. They worked with Win. Can't be too successful to, as an yeah, indie band. For sure. You know. Yeah, there's, there's a certain point where people start accusing you of selling out, which is is that a thing? Is it a bad thing? That's a discussion. Selling it all. <laughs> this is like, is it bad to want to make money? <laughs> yeah, to live as an artist. Yeah. So Owen Pallett worked with Wynn Butler on the score for the movie Her, which we mentioned they received an Oscar nomination for. So Heartland, which is the album I'm recommending, is the first album to be released under Pallett's own name. The previous albums were released under the name Final Fantasy. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, Toured is that for a while. Yeah. With this album, they wanted to release it in Japan, and you can't <laughs> release an album in Japan under the name Final Fantasy for obvious reasons. It's really starting um, on your back foot there. Yeah. So they released it under their own name to avoid confusion with the video game series. So the album itself forms a narrative about a young, ultra-violent farmer named Lewis who is commanded by an all-powerful narrator named Owen. According to Owen, the musician, all the songs are one-sided dialogues with Lewis speaking to his creator. So there's just fantastic strings. You've got this strange narrative being told. The, The narrative is also told out of order because... These tracks on the album organized by what was the best listening experience rather than what was the best story to tell. (laughs) There's actually a line on the album where Owen sings, this place is a narrative mess. (laughs) It's really just a fantastic album to listen to, and I highly recommend it. And, you know, they worked with Arcade Fire, so I thought it was appropriate to bring up here. Mm -hmm. I also chose a album that has a nexus to Arcade Fire. It's the new pornographers, record label mates. Their album, Twin Cinema, came out in 05. So shortly after Funeral that we're talking about here, I think it has some of the same musical vibe, but with their own spin on it. I got to see New Pornographers in Chicago, and they did a lot of this album, actually. It was kind of a callback because one of the first stops on one of their first tours was through Chicago. It was one of the places where they had kind of first started getting big. Their first show was at the hideout. Anyways, Twin Cinema by the New Pornographers. Check it out. It's a good album. No, sounds great. Again, be sure to subscribe to the show and leave a comment with your thoughts on this week's album. Also, you can follow the show on Instagram at PleaseNoMoss. To figure out what album we'll be covering next week, let's fire up our patented album-selecting algorithm, developed by some of the world's top data scientists and musicologists. Next time, 
we'll be talking about number 58, Led Zeppelin 4 by Led Zeppelin. Until then, keep on rolling. Jesus, we really have 498 albums to go. Are we really going to listen to all 500? Please, no mas. (laughs) 